welcome to the Low-Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology and the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. So today uh, we're going to start talking directly about domestication. Domestication is the intentional propagation of plants or animals. It's the intentional propagation of plants or animals for, for food, usually. Dome the Intentional propagation of plants or animals for food uh, or other uses. Food or other uses. And this is usually accompanied by a genetic change. So until there's a genetic change, you're just kind of like keeping wild animals, right? Once there's a genetic change that makes that animal somehow different from their wild cousins, that plant or animal different from their wild cousins, then we can say it is domesticated. It's usually been changed often for food, but sometimes for other things like um, we grow, I was going to say sheep, but I guess people do eat sheep and drink sheep milk and do all that sort of stuff and lamb. Uh, let's say, oh, hemp. There you go. Hemp is a, is a food that, not a, not a food, it is a, something that is grown to make cord and rope out of, and people use it for other things for some reason. Um, but it is not necessarily a food crop. Um, it is a commodity crop, right? Uh, cotton, also, you don't eat cotton. Well, you can eat cotton. You can do whatever you want. Um, so let's talk specifically about plants and what are the major changes that we see in plants when they become domesticated. Usually, we are after some part of the plant, and often that is the seed, right? When we're talking about, say, wheat or corn or lentils or peas or whatever, the reason that we are often after the seeds is because they're the highest in um, nutrient density, right? They usually have some sort of um, energy source for the, the baby plant that's going to spring out of it. It has often oils, um, minerals, vitamins, all kinds of good stuff to uh, feed that baby plant when it first emerges as a seedling. But instead, us mean humans are going to come along and take all that good nutrition for ourselves. And so we're often, like I said, concentrating on the seed, although there are certainly plants like tubers, uh, roots, um, and other uh, fruits which surround seeds, things like that, uh, that are not directly seeds. But we're talking about seeds. One of the things that changes is we break down the seed dispersal mechanism which is kind of a fancy way to say we stop the seeds from getting spread everywhere, right? If uh, you've ever seen dandelions, who hasn't seen dandelions? Let me rephrase that. You've all seen dandelions. And you know that you can uh, blow on them when they become uh, the white puffy balls and the seeds go everywhere. That's seed dispersal, right? And so if we're eating dandelion seeds, uh, we would want to stop that from happening because we want those seeds. So in things like, uh, let's take wheat, for example, you have your wheat stalk, and then you have your wheat berries or seeds, they're called berries, but they're not berries, they're seeds, um, attached to it. And usually what happens in wild wheat or the progenitor of, of modern wheat 
It's got, you know, little bits on it. These break off and the seeds float down and off and get dispersed by the wind uh, and then grow up the next year. Well, if you want to collect those seeds, you are going to preferentially um, collect seeds from plants that don't break off, that don't lose their seeds. And in every population, there's variety. And in wheat, there's no difference. So there are different propensities to lose your seeds. And the seeds are connected to the stalk by something called a rachis, R-A-C-H-I-S, rachis. And usually these are really brittle. And when they dry enough, it breaks and the seed falls off, and that's what disperses it. Uh, every population has variety, and so some have less brittle rachises, and some have more. And so humans, when they're domesticating wheat, are going to artificially select for the less brittle rachises. We're kind of putting our hand on the scale of uh, natural selection. Uh, interestingly, when uh, Darwin first put out his theory of natural selection, it wasn't actually that controversial. Most people, you know, at this time were somehow connected to farming in England. Either they owned farms or they were farmers. Uh, and so they knew that, well, when you want to breed a cow that has certain characteristics, gives a lot of milk, is really gentle, is brown, or whatever you're selecting for, you choose which animals breed because we know that those genetic traits are passed on. And so when um, Darwin said, well, nature is basically doing that. Instead of a person choosing which cow is going to live, nature has its, uh, doesn't make a decision. There's not an active decision there, but it has pressures, right? And nature usually is going to put pressure against this less brittle rachis, because if you don't break your seeds off, then they don't get dispersed, and they just fall right here, and they all compete, right? You want seeds that disperse. And if they're too brittle, they fall off before they're ripe, right? So nature selects for the ideal wild wheat brittleness of rachis, right? Uh, but now we come along and we push down and we say, no, we want the less brittle rachis so that when we pluck the plant or cut the plant off with the sickle and carry the plant in with us, all the seeds stay on it. Same thing with cows, right? Um, and so the continuation of that story about Darwin is that it was only when he said, all right, this is the natural selection. This happens to all animals. And hey, by the way, we're animals. And so we have been uh, derived from nature, from natural you know, wild animals, uh, in this case, chimpanzees, uh, or something like a chimpanzee seven million years ago. And so we are descended from apes. And people got really upset about that, because that flies in the face of other uh, origin stories and became much more of a hot button issue. It's not the natural selection that is a problem. It is the natural selection when applied to human beings that is technically what the controversy is all about. Sorry, I watched Bill Nye debating that guy who has the Creation Museum in Kentucky or whatever last night. And it just, I don't know why I watch that stuff. It just makes me so mad. Oh, anyway, um, so you can see over time, and I'm going to talk specifically about how this happened um, in a minute, but there were a couple of different major theories that come about. Mm, before, no, I will, I'll just talk about this now because this is where we're at. OK. So uh, in one scenario, and we don't know exactly how this happened. In, let me rephrase that. We have a pretty good idea of how this happened, although there are a couple different paths. We know the beginning of the, of the, the journey, uh, that wheat 
Here's wheat. Mr. Wheat here, an anthropomorphized wheat. We know where wheat started, and we know where wheat ended. There's Mr. Wheat, and there's you know a couple different paths that Mr. Wheat here could have traveled to get to there, and we have ideas of what those paths are, which one or ones, it could have been more than one in different areas, was actually traveled. Might be difficult to say because it was a very subtle process. So basically the idea is, let's say under one scenario, people were going out and actually collecting the whole plant. Right? They'd go out when the wheat was ripe, or the, the, the progenitor of wheat, the wild wheat that existed in the Middle East here along the Fertile Crescent, which is what's referred to here as the upper uh, Euphrates and Tigris Rivers areas, what's now uh, Israel, uh, Lebanon, over into um, you know, ISIS territory. Anyway, uh, so you know, they go out and they collect all their wheat, and they're walking back to their you know, little farmstead. And the only seeds that stay on are the ones with less brachuses. So the next year, when they have their crop and they go out and throw seeds out to encourage it to grow, which ones are going to be selected for? The ones that didn't have the brittle rachis, right? Um, and they're going to protect those plants and do things to keep them growing. Um, so that's one way they, they would have selected that way. Um, we also select for things like, so that's one of the paths, probably, um, I think, the most likely. Um, Something like that. Uh, also, when you're collecting them, you're going to lose the ones that don't stay on because you're cutting it. Right? There's a couple different mechanisms where people would knock that rachis, uh, the ones with the weak rachis, off and select for those with. And they probably weren't doing this knowingly. It was probably accidental that by some method of collection, they artificially chose for the ones that had the less brittle rachis. They didn't have an. It's very likely that they did not understand the genetic passing down of, of traits in the scientific way that we like to think we do. OK. Um, corn. Corn started out as a very small, same with wheat. Uh, it started out as much smaller seeds. And over time, we selected uh, what wild wheat, or excuse me, wild corn looks like to what we understand as corn today. So here's another example with corn. Uh, in nature, there's a variation. And if you're going out and picking off mini corn cobs off of the teosinte progenitor of modern corn, which ones are you going to pick first? Not the tiny little ones. You're going to pick the big ones. And so over time, after picking the larger ones, and then they grow up, right? So if here's cob size in nature, you're going to pick the big ones, and those become the population that you plant the next year, and then you pick the big ones. And over time, not because people were you know, master geneticists or anything like that, and they understood if I only plant the larger seeds or the larger cob seeds, we're going to get larger and larger plants over time. They didn't know that, very likely. Um, but just because you know, it's, if you're collecting plants, you're going to collect the big ones first. And so it would have been inadvertent, but they would have bred then for larger uh, more uniform corn over time. This is what Teosinte looks like uh, wild today. It still exists. It grows in the ditches in Mexico. Uh, you can kind of see how it looks like corn on, I don't know, crazy corn uh, with the long, skinny arms sticking out. Those have been repressed and stick down to the central stock. Yeah. 
Um, and again, we can see the timing of this using pollen dating. Um, and again, the, the mechanism, that seems like the most likely explanation. Although without a time machine, it's going to be very hard to show for sure because even though pollen data shows us the advent of maize, um, it doesn't really tell us too much about the morphology. Um, okay, so let me talk about origin theories for a minute. Um, so that's what I've explained here are the very specific paths that uh, we might have gone down to domesticate wheat and domesticate corn. But there are also social things going on. And as archaeologists, we're not just interested in the nuts and bolts. We're also interested in the, the why and the, and the social questions that go along with it. Um, and so there were a couple different theories that came out uh, that described how agriculture and sedentism came about. Because that was a, never existed before. Um, v. Gordon Child, who's one of my favorite archaeologists, um, child with an E, uh, he, at a time when everybody was talking about individual uh, sites or regions, he took a very broad view of human history and change over time. And he coined the term Neolithic revolution. Uh, he probably chose the word revolution because this was the early half of the 1900s when things like the uh, Russian Revolution and other revolutions were sweeping uh, the globe. And Child was a Marxist archaeology archaeologist. And uh, I don't think it's, I mean, on the one hand, the Neolithic Revolution, which is the transition from being a hunter-gatherer to being an agriculturalist, it took a long time. It wasn't like one guy or gal got the idea, hey, let's be sedentary agriculturalists. Well, how could you have that idea? It's never existed before. Uh, it would have taken time. Um, it would have taken generations to become more sedentary, very likely. So we'll call it a slow revolution. Uh, but Neolithic revolution um, is often referring to or is referring to the advent of agriculture and sedentism. And his theory was that it was called the oasis theory, like why this happened. He called it, uh, oh, I can't spell it all, oasis. Oasis theory, uh, basically the idea that, well, in the Middle East, it's a very arid environment, and plants and animals often congregate around uh, sources of fresh water, oases, right? And because humans and plants and humans and animals were living and uh, existing in such close proximity to one another, they became A, accustomed to each other, and B, uh, the humans started exerting pressure. You know, let's say there are some wild progenitors of sheep there. Maybe there's a ram that's kind of a jerk and like budding, you know, being aggressive towards people. Maybe they'd kill that one and eat it. And they'd let the other ones live. And over time, they might cull the population of the sheep that weren't very friendly to humans and accept those that were. And over time, then they would have domesticated sheep. There's a Russian uh, scientist who domesticated uh, foxes. Uh, and the way he did it was pretty, I mean, I guess it's brutal if you don't, if you like foxes, but, uh, or, you know, living things. Uh, he would have, like, a whole bunch of cages of foxes, and he would go in the cage, and if the fox showed any aggression, he killed it. And then those that didn't show aggression, uh, he let them breed. And over time, there were less and less aggressive foxes. And uh, now there is a uh, research station in 
eastern Russia somewhere, that has basically domesticated foxes that are as friendly as dogs. And they like run around, they wag their tail, and they have floppy ears, and they're really cute. Uh, but the way they got that way was like selection, <laughs> like full on, we're selecting for friendly foxes. So you know that's certainly possible, although this is a pretty outmoded, although it was one of the most important early uh, theories for why um, why we became domestic, uh, reliant on domesticated animals and plants. And then there was a really popular one in the 19, oh, I think it's 50s, called the hilly flanks theory. Hilly flanks refer to this area of the Fertile Crescent that I showed you pictures of before. Boop, 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 boop. The hilly flanks theory was put out by a guy named Braidwood. who uh, you've read some by uh, what he talked a little bit about uh, growing grain for alcohol. So the hilly flanks refer to the foothills of the Middle East, where uh, a lot of the plants that we know as domesticates today, oat, uh, wheat, spelt, rye, and others, grow wild, or at least their ancestors uh, grow wild or grew wild when it was a little wetter. It's a little drier now. And because people lived in this area, uh, we know that they domesticated these plants. Uh, it's likely that it was just uh, a way to maintain their local environment by suppressing plants that didn't give them things they wanted and encouraging the growth of things that they did want, like wheat um, and the seeds. And so it was a slow, gradual process because of proximity, again, to these domesticated or pre-domesticates. Um, the one that I told you the other day, where we have the seasonal sedentism, right? People are going in a seasonal cycle to different camps for each season, and then perhaps they start staying longer in the summer one. Uh, maybe grandpa stays because he can't walk so well anymore, or um, and they stick in one place. That's part of what's called the uh, demographic theory. Um, the demographic theory, and this was by a guy named Binford, probably one of the most influential archaeologists in the last half of the 1900s. Um, another, uh, the other part of the demographic theory, after you know seasonal sedentism changes into uh, permanent sedentism and agriculture, um, is that as people became sedentary and agriculturalists, because they're not traveling their populations grow. And the reason for that is um, hunter-gatherers are very careful about spacing out births. Um, they do that by um, discouraging women from having uh, offspring in too close of succession because it's hard to be immobile with more than one kid who can't walk or be self-sufficient. And so um, hunter-gatherers often practice um, very long degrees of breastfeeding because women often will um, suffer from, suffer from uh, what's the word? They will experience lactational amenorrhea, which basically means not um, ovulating while they're breastfeeding. And uh, I always put in this caveat, do not use this as a form of birth control today, any of you in your relationships, because uh, we are, our diets are so rich that um, women uh, in industrial agricultural societies like ours can become pregnant while breastfeeding. So do not use that as a form of birth control and write me an angry email. 
later on, I don't, uh, no, do not, no, do now, no, I did not say it will work. It works for hunter-gatherers who live much closer, you know, have a, have uh, more seasonal difficulties getting food. Uh, there might have been, of, uh, might have been other reasons uh, why they would have been amenorrheal a, uh, at different times of the year because of lack of food, for example. So anyway, uh, there were other methods they also used uh, to keep from having too many children. Once they become sedentary, though, eh, who cares if we have a couple kids at a time, really? Um, and so uh, populations grew from a couple of kids, four, you know, three, four kids per family to like six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids per family because, you know, there's no Netflix, there's no, you know, uh, cell phones, there's no, you know, like, what are you going to do? There's no electricity, lights go out for, you know, it's dark for 11 hours a day. I mean, what are you going to do? Except have lots of babies. Um, Furthermore, uh, you could wean the children off because if you're a hunter-gatherer, the only milk available to use if you maybe herd animals like reindeers or something, uh, that would be a source that you could get milk to replace uh, breast milk with. But until kids are eating like full food, they don't really have much else to eat. So once they start growing these seeds, which can be ground up and made into like gruels and porridge and things like that that are easily digestible by babies, uh, they could wean them very quickly and then become, um, come into uh, uh, ovulation again and have, have more children. So it's, it was kind of a self-feeding cycle. So the demographic theory says as these populations grew larger, they had to stay and become sedentary agriculturalists. They had to remain sedentary agriculturalists because they couldn't go back to being hunter-gatherers. There's just too many of them. It wouldn't have been supported uh, on the lifestyle of hunter-gatherers. So they kind of fell into a trap. It's a trap uh, of, of having too many kids. Uh, they just didn't have the choice to go back. And I'm not making a comment about how many kids we should have today. It's a completely different um, time. Um, boom, 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 boom. Okay. So it is a, certainly a question, did domestication lead to sedentism or vice versa? which I think is kind of a, which came first, the chicken or the egg, which of course has an answer. The egg, eggs have been around since dinosaur times. Chicken's much later, so the egg has been first, but I guess they mean the chicken egg, which is an interesting question. And uh, these probably came about at the same time. Uh, hand in hand, people became more sedentary um, as domesticates allowed them to do that. Okay. <laughs> So one question that we're going to address, uh, not the Monday after spring break, although that's what it says on the syllabus, we're going to do it on Wednesday. We're going to talk about whether or not um, domestication and sedentism were net benefits to human society or not. Um, there are certainly <clears throat> some benefits, and it's, I'm not going to sit here and list them uh, because that's going to be kind of your job. Uh, we'll talk some about them. But very briefly, right, um, we see things like larger populations, more complex societies happen when uh, people become sedentary. But we also see a lot of issues with health. Uh, health goes down. Um, violence goes up. So um, there's certainly a debate to be had whether or not sedentism and domestication are, uh, were a net benefit for human society. I guess it kind of depends on what you think beneficial human society means. Um, 
and we say that for the benefit of here we are right now, uh, having benefited from 10,000 years of, uh, you know, uh, sedentary agriculturalism, we're actually living better than uh, hunter-gatherers, which is rare, and that only happened in the last 50 years. Before 50 years ago, uh, humans were smaller and less healthy than hunter-gatherers because we had less diverse diets. It's only in the last 50 years that we've become healthier and bigger and, like, taller. Like, uh, height, um, we talked about height when we talked about bioarchaeology. Height is an indicator of many things, right? It's not just one set of genes. There's many genes that indicate what your height range is going to be, right? There's a range of how tall you're going to be based on your genetics. Within that range, your actual height is determined by, the final bit, is determined largely by your nutrition. And for example, there has been a major shift in Japan where uh, people eating traditional Japanese food, like rice and fish, uh, end up you know, in, in a lower uh, height than their offspring, which are largely of the same genetic material, who are eating uh, red meat and milk and a more Western diet, they're actually uh, significantly taller, more than, more than one would expect, given the statistics of the thing. They are significantly higher. So that's an important distinction there. Higher than one would expect through chance. Um, and that has to do with what they're eating. Uh, I have a friend, uh, a Japanese friend, who he grew up eating a traditional Japanese diet. And he was always mad at his parents because all his friends were much taller than he was. He was like, my parents could have, uh, whatever. And I'm like, well, it's only half that, nurture and nature. But anyway, we human beings who have become uh, hunter-gatherers uh, hunter are generally in a taller sort of uh, realm of human beings. And until recently, farm-based societies were much shorter. If you go to like rural England, for example, and go into like old buildings or old buildings all over the ancient world, even like the pre-industrial world, you have to duck to get into the doorways. And like, we're not that tall, right? We're not Dutch or anything. who are really tall. Um, statistics, and I'm saying that like, Dutch people are tall. I'm talking about national statistics. By the way, I am US, exactly US national average height for men last I saw. So hooray. So, you know, if I'm average, I'm not that tall or short. Uh, but I still have to duck when I go into these old buildings because the it's only in the last 50 years that we have reached the height and health of our ancestors from 10,000 years ago. So that is kind of terrifying. Experimental archaeology. This is actually what I wanted to study, uh, what I wanted to focus on when I went into grad school, but it wasn't allowed as a focus. Experimental archaeology is basically mythbusters for archaeology. Although a little bit more scientifically, okay, a lot more scientifically rigorous than Mythbusters. No offense meant to Mythbusters. Um, we are not able to know everything about the past because we're not there, right? We don't know, for example, how much an acre of ancient wheat would yield. So how many acres would an average family have to farm in the Neolithic, in Neolithic Britain to feed themselves? Oh, hard to say. Through experimental archaeology, you can find basically the equivalent of very old heirloom-style wheat. You can grow it using traditional methods, and then you can measure the results. 
how many calories it takes to grow it, how many calories you get back out, how much time, how much space, yada, yada, yada. All of these things can be measured experimentally. And so there are places that do these experiments. Uh, this young man is making oak shingles out of wood, which uh, I should be hearing like literally any minute on this offer on this house that we put, and it has wooden shingles. So this summer, I'm making wooden shingles. I'm really excited because the roof needs to be redone. So that's going to be my summer, is spinning uh, wood into shingles. But they do this. They measure how long it takes, how much wood it takes, how often you have to replace them. And then that can give you an idea of what sort of resources are needed to build houses out of thatch or traditional materials. Um, Buster Farm, which is what this is, is in England, and it's an experimental archaeology farm, and this is exactly what they do. They ask questions, and then they do experiments to try and get the answers to things that we otherwise couldn't really get at. Um, they experiment with things like crop rotation, letting land lay fallow. Um, these are just things that you can't see archaeologically. They play with uh, sheep and uh, experiment with different uh, shepherding methods, uh, fencing, grazing patterns, all kinds of things. Um, here you can see the different thatched roofs. These are all based on uh, historical reconstructions that they've recreated on their farm. One uh, result that they've gotten is that uh, they, the ancient types of uh, cereals that they're growing actually yield a lot higher uh, quality and density uh, return on their, on, on their uh, investment than they expected, which is kind of a good thing to know that, hey, they wouldn't have had to farm as much as we had thought based on the yields that we expected because the yields were much higher. Um, they also tested storage solutions like making pits in the ground and seeing how long grain will go without going moldy and things like that. There's a, a lot of individual tests that they could do. And this is a lot of what I'll be doing in the future. Um, not just for re-shingling my house, um, but uh, for example, I'm also going to be building a um, kind of an unusual underground greenhouse that was used in South America, doing terracing, doing a lot of different um, techniques from ethnographic or ethnohistoric uh, sources and testing out how effective they are and how they can be adapted. That's basically what I do outside of class. So yeah. Okay, so has anyone ever thought about what's the point of cooking every day? What's the point of cooking? Well, you could feed myself. Well, yeah, but well, you could just eat raw vegetables and raw fruit. So why do we cook them? Makes it taste better. Absolutely, yeah. It unlocks some nutrients that we otherwise wouldn't. Any other reasons? Anyone ever eat raw potatoes? Yeah, you shouldn't. Yeah, you shouldn't eat raw. It has. Yeah, you you really, you really shouldn't do that. <laughs> Other roots are fine, but uh, potatoes have a uh, some sort of I forget the exact compound, but it's you're not supposed to eat uncooked potatoes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you look fine. Yeah. Yeah. You're okay. Then you're then you're fine. Um, yeah. Look it up. Uh, and you can get, maybe get back to us with a short report about why you shouldn't eat uncooked potatoes. Um, anyway, yeah, so all those things you've mentioned, uh, the taste, taste is somewhat uh, a 
acquired by our genetics in some case. Like uh, we really like fat and sugar because fat and sugar exist in very small quantities in nature or in, in non-industrial, non-artificial uh, environments. And so we are predisposed to just like eat, 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 eat as much sugar and fat as we can get our hands on because when you had it, you got to eat it so that you can save it for later. Um, and that's why we have very, like, it's, it's part of our ma genetic makeup that we don't uh, feel full after eating a whole thing of potato chips because we don't have breaks. We don't have genetic breaks. Uh, we've, we've outpaced our genetics in terms of our diets. Anyway, um, but yes, so, okay. Yeah, so I'm not going to ask you about the uh, expensive tissue hypothesis on the exam, but basically, if we look at all the apes that we're related to, um, there is a correlation between how large your stomach is or how large your intestinal tract is and how large your brain is. And we're way up here with uh, tiny stomachs and large brains, and most uh, apes are down here. Uh, gorillas, for example, they have really large intestinal tracts because they eat basically leaves. And to get enough calories to survive, just eat, like imagine if all you had to eat were like salads. And I'm not talking like salads with a whole bunch of bacon and, you know, uh, Hidden Valley and stuff drizzled on. I'm talking just lettuce. How much lettuce would you have to eat in a day? It was, someone checked for me, I think it was either cabbage or lettuce was like 26 heads of it to get 2,000 calories. Blech. No, thank you. Anyway, so why does it have to do with cooking? Part of the reason that we were able to reduce our intestinal tract is we started, I like to call it pre-digesting our food, which is basically what cooking is, if you think about it. What do you do to digest food? Well, you break it up, make it smaller, right? So you chop things up, you grind things up, you mash them up, you make them into soups and stews. You, uh, cooking starts to break down the cell walls. It breaks down things that are too hard to eat. Um, it makes them more uh, uh, soft and broken apart so that you can digest them, right? Uh, it breaks down compounds that would otherwise be harmful to you, like the things in potatoes, right? So cooking does a whole bunch of pre-digestion for you, if you want to think about it that way. That way, when we eat it, it's high energy, concentrated, and ready to be digested really fast. So cooking gave us an evolutionary advantage um, and also freed up a lot of calories that otherwise weren't available to us. Um, cooking has been a great avenue of uh, examination for archaeologists because often it has to do with fire and tools, and so these things are left in the archaeological record. So we can actually tell quite a lot about cooking. Um, remember I mentioned the movement of uh, the Itza, the Maya, uh, into that northern lowlands area, and they brought with them foods from central Mexico that hadn't existed before in the Maya area, and including salsa, and they had these special um, pots uh, called molcajetes to grind up the, corn, um, the tomato to make salsa. So we could see from the cooking ethnic food coming in, which is pretty neat. Uh, a lot of also what we know about cooking um, and uh, plant use comes from past literature and descriptions only for the last 5,000 years, though. Actually, some of the first writing ever describes grain transactions, like how many bushels of grain, you know, farmer Nebuchadnezzar or whoever 
uh, was turning into the temple. Like those are some of the earliest writings we have were accounting of foodstuffs. And uh, here we have, you know, Egypt has tons of images of uh, practices, uh, you know, Greek pots that were both used for food and also depict food images. Going into the Middle Ages, even we have lots, lots and lots of information about about cooking from uh, not direct archaeological. Um, okay, so we're going to skip animals. Let's see, and I will ask you about animals. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. You can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.